Every day in America, approximately 22 veterans, first responders, or crime victims commit suicide. That number is a staggering amount and constantly increasing. Get involved in offering solutions to the men and women who so bravely take an oath to protect and serve the lives of Americans. Now, a word from our sponsors and then our host. Welcome to Crisis in America PTSD and Veteran Suicide. I am Sean Flynn, and I'm here today with my co-host, Colonel Mike Brown, and our special guest, Sarah Verado. Before I get started with the introduction of our special guest, I want to bring the audience back to the purpose of this show. With the return of 2.7 million veterans from Operation Iraqi Freedom, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan, and other recent, oftentimes, multiple war zone deployments, America's solemn responsibility to care for our returning heroes is a more important mission than ever. Regrettably, the suicide crisis that has endured and markedly increased in our veteran community over the past decade stands as a stark reminder that we must redouble our efforts to address continued gaps in veterans' care. Crisis in America PTSD and Veteran Suicides podcast series purpose is to bring the needed changes and solutions on this epidemic plaguing our nation from subject matter experts and special guests with experience in their respective fields. Today, we are going to talk about component of care for our veterans on their spiritual wound of war. That care is from a caregiver, shamefully under-resourced, sadly the burden placed on nonprofits and family bank accounts. An unbelievable waning of public support and nearly non-existent spiritually funded programs. This is a fact-based show, and we encourage your feedback and to share with us your ideas and solutions because left to big government, I'm afraid we are not going to see the changes our country is demanding as the last 12 years has only seen an increase in the suicide numbers amongst our sons and daughters of this nation who so bravely defended it when called upon. Colonel Mike, would you say a few words before we introduce our guest today? Yes, Sean. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for uh, the great introduction there as we get started here. And I know you're going to introduce Sarah here pretty soon. And it's great to, to be here today. You know, Crisis in America PTSD and Veteran Suicide Show is fair and balanced. That's what we want the audience to understand. It's not concerned really too much about political opinions or political issues at all. That's not why we're here. We're here for the hard truths with one purpose, to reduce suicide rates among veterans and first responders by addressing issues and having guests like we're gonna hear from Sarah today on the show who can address those issues. And most importantly, folks, offer solutions. We're not a complaining show. We're bringing hard truths to the table but we're also bringing guests to the table to give solutions. On the battlefield, Sean and Sarah, we have our battle buddies who watch our backs when the situation gets really bad. When we return home injured from combat or service-related injuries, we have our caregivers. They could be our parent, a spouse, even a child. You can go as far as an extended family member as well. You know, without caregivers, our institutions would be full, and suicide rates, I believe, would be exponentially higher. Let's throw some stunning facts out to the audience today to put some context into our show before we get started. Listeners, there is a lack of resources out there today. Sean talked about that up the beginning. 
for our caregivers, even though they average some up to 80 hours a week. Additionally, there are outrageous gaps in medical care out there. Let me explain some of these gaps. I think it's important as we move forward into the show that you really understand that 80% of the funding out there for our caregivers is given to by nonprofits. Let's look at the biggest gaps in support. Among the specialty areas covered by out the 127 programs that were spanned nationwide for military caregivers, these are covered by the fewest programs. Get this, 10% provide mental health care. This is mental health care offered outside of the normal institutional channels. 7% is respite care. This means care provided by a substitute given to caregivers so the caregivers can have a break. 3% is health care, care offered outside of normal institutional Can you imagine these numbers? 3% for religious support. And we've talked about this in the show. You go back to the veteran and the lack of support in some of these same similar areas. And then the person who is supporting them as a caregiver and this same minimal amount of support in not just the cares I just talked about earlier, but even the spiritual care, 3%, stunning, folks. And let's go down to financial stipendants. Compensation for caregivers, 2%, two cents on the dollar. So, Sean, I'm really excited to have Sarah here today. I truly am because she's a national spokesperson. She has broken the ceiling. She has gotten out there at the ground boots level. She's been down there and found out how to get attention at the national level. She's a national expert on the subject because of her leadership. She is doing her part in closing some of these gaps. As we always say, Sean, she is making things happen at the national and, more importantly, at the local level. If we are going to reduce suicides in this country amongst our vets, it will take leaders like Sarah to get policies, procedures, and practices implemented at the local levels. This is where the resources need to flow. Sean? Thank you, Colonel Mike. It's my privilege to introduce Sarah Verardo. Sarah Verardo has become a national face for severely wounded combat veterans and their caregivers. She's appeared on numerous television programs and news outlets over the past several years to push for veteran affairs health care reform. Sarah has dedicated her life to both the care and recovery of her husband and supporting caregivers and our wounded heroes nationwide. She is a national spokesperson for caregivers in the country. Serving as an alumni fellow with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, she is also she also has had a significant background in both public relations and fundraising, and is a respected national voice, regularly featured on conservative national programs and talk shows. Sarah continues her service as the CEO of the Independence Fund as a highly effective advocate for veterans and caregivers, working directly with members of the United States House and Senate. Sarah, can you tell us about the Independence Fund? I understand it's been around since 2007, and since then it seems like it's now a national treasure for both the veterans and the caregivers all over the United States. Thank you for having me, and of course I'm delighted to talk about the fund. 
the Independence Fund to date, we started as a very, very small organization, all volunteer, with just a hope to provide some level of independence back to those who had sacrificed theirs for us. And to date, we've awarded more than $70 million in direct support to our nation's most catastrophically wounded service members and their families. It's truly the blessing of a lifetime to be the CEO of this organization and see such incredible work come to fruition every single day. Sarah, that's terrific. $70 million. I mean, did you ever think it was going to grow that far so fast? What I have realized in the many years post my husband Mike's catastrophic combat injuries is that every American, every American, regardless of every other factor that would normally divide us, every American wants to and can champion our nation's bravest population. And most just don't know how. We know that such a small percentage of people serve and are willing to sacrifice for us. And I think a lot of Americans want to be involved, want to give back, want to show the support of a grateful nation and just don't know how to. So once the momentum of the Independence Fund picked up, which of course started with our Hallmark track wheelchair campaign, and to date we've distributed more than 2,500 of those chairs to severely wounded veterans, I realized that every American, when they hear about our mission, they can't get involved quickly enough because everyone wants to give back to those who keep us this wonderful land of the free. You know, I was listening to the news uh, just last week, you know, and I know you committed to the show about two weeks ago. And I did, I, I heard about the Independence Fund and they were measuring it as a mark that there's, since the pandemic, there's been more resources leveraged out of the Independence Fund. What do you think about that during the pandemic that the independence fund's been tagged more often? I'm not surprised because I think in order to understand where my passion comes from and, and what keeps all of us at the independence fund going on a daily basis, you have to know that the mission is deeply, deeply personal to us. Um, my husband and I met in high school at a really small school in Rhode Island, and he wanted to join because of the September 11th attacks, and he did. And he was never, ever prouder than being a paratrooper and wearing our nation's uniform. But when he went to war, he thought he was going to war and coming home or going to war and not coming home. And either scenario was completely acceptable to him. What he didn't plan for and what I could have never expected was that he would come home and for 10 years now exist in this place where catastrophically wounded. He needs another person to do every single thing for him other than feed himself. He, he feeds himself. Um, and that fuels us. But we realize that families like ours, when, they, when the veteran leaves the battlefield and the, the surgeries may be over, although in some cases they continue. My husband recently had his 120th surgery. We know these heroes are at such a high risk. They have compromised immune and pulmonary systems. And then of course, there are all the mental health factors that go along with being catastrophically combat wounded, leaving your unit, leaving your deployment in a coma via a medevac. And so when COVID became apparent, the crisis it was going to be here in the United States, our team is really wonderful at shifting and being fluid. We always want to exist because we're providing a tangible service. We're not existing for any reason other than that. I tell my team all the time, be like a disaster relief organization, be fluid, be on the ground, and you meet that veteran and their family wherever they are. And so I have to really give credit to the team because they made such a quick, immediate shift to realizing that COVID would both directly and then the second and third order effects would have such a dire, 
dire consequence to the population that we are so blessed to serve. And so we started saying, how can we help? What do you need? Do you need help with rent, mortgage, groceries? Do you need help with childcare? In a lot of cases, even like in my own, I really cannot go between caring for my husband and caring for my children because the risk is so high. And that was true of a lot of caregivers. They needed, they were asking us for very basic things like, would we pay for a Netflix subscription for them so that they could keep the children occupied while they were tending to their wounded veteran at home? I mean, this was a no brainer for us, but of course, what we expected the support needs to be and what they've actually been has been shocking. I mean, there are just so many families out there that have served our nation and need our help right now. You truly are a national treasure. And I, I know we're going off a little bit there, but that's, that is just shows truly the depth of the independence fund and the caregiving support in a caregiving situation for combat trauma or service related trauma, but in an epidemic or a pandemic that we are in where you guys fit in so nicely. Hey, Sarah, our show is about solutions and innovative ideas. And I know you've just showed us so many innovative ideas on the fly right there with the pandemic. But there is no argument out there today that the norm of 22 suicides a day, one suicide every 65 minutes, over 6,000 suicides a year for the last 12 years, and over 66,000 suicides since 2008. And I think we can agree on that here today as well. This is not our norm. You know, and I haven't really seen uh, and heard, I I think as far back as 2017, I've seen a shadow, maybe a silence, maybe, maybe a ad hoc norm. I don't think that's the intent, but that's what I'm kind of leaning to that. This isn't our norm. We have also argued on this show that sustainable treatment down to the local and rural edge of America is falling short too. You know, I I suffer from PTSD as well. Sean's a PTSD survivor as well and has suffered from it. Both of us have walked the gauntlet in treatment centers together. Sean and I are spiritual brothers. So Sarah, now when I read about one of your programs, you you got my attention. That program is Operation Resiliency. Because if I understand it correctly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but just you actually target specific military units with the high suicide risk. I'm a suicide survivor as well. And and you have identified at-risk vets and their families too. Can you expand on operational resiliency? Are you seeing any trends, outcomes, or lessons? Absolutely, and thank you. Operation Resiliency is the most important program we have at the Independence Fund, and we have many. We have seven total programs. But this is a program that we are seeing changing and saving lives. Operation Resiliency was born at a family reunion and one that we should have never had. When I told you about my husband being catastrophically combat wounded, I didn't know at the time, but he did, that the men he served with were his brothers. And as I've learned more as the years have gone on, I know that they held on to his body as they thought it was leaving this earth. They talked to him even when he was unconscious. And there are incredible men who to this day are so supportive of me and my three daughters. And what was really sad to me is to see what happened after service. So one of the heroes that had been wounded and served alongside Mike was Staff Sergeant Alan Thomas. And Mike and Alan served in Bravo Company 2508 in the 82nd Airborne. 
the 2508 was so hard hit during their 910 deployment to Afghanistan that Walter Reed had an entire wing dedicated to them. And when Mike was brought in, he was on imminent death status. They you know, didn't expect him to survive. And Alan had been serving in Afghanistan with Mike. He had been taken out a month prior by a suicide bomber. And he had chest tubes. He was also really not doing well. And he was not supposed to leave his room. But when he heard that Verado was coming in and, and how dire the situation was, um, he defied doctor's orders. And he crawled down the hall to meet my husband's medevac. And he just sat with him. And that, that is the bond of brotherhood. I understood it finally. And Alan, just like my husband, was a two-time Purple Heart recipient. Incredible, incredible man who would have given his last anything to anyone who needed it. So imagine my horror in 2013 when, you know, everyone's out of the military and we're all trying to acclimate to civilian life, that Alan walks into the VA hospital in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Wow. And says, you know, Alan's not doing well. And he has a six-month-old and a two-year-old. And he's married to a wonderful woman named Danica, who is my very best friend. And Alan walks in and says, I'm not doing well. I'm worried about what I'm going to do. I, I think I'm suicidal. And they had no beds available. This was the height of the waitlist crisis in 2013. They had no beds available. They gave him a 90-day prescription supply and sent him home. And by the time... They called four months later to schedule his mental health appointment. He was long dead and buried. Alan died just days after being turned away from the VA. And in a really tragic, horrible circumstance, Alan had a severe flashback. And he took two lives and then his own. And this was shocking to so many of us. And our first brush was suicide because we thought these guys were home. Of course, they were in pieces, but we were going to have a relatively smooth and normal life because thank God they were alive. So many of their brothers had been killed, but you know, Mike was alive, Alan was alive, Jared was alive. So many of them were alive, even though it looked really different. And so I remember standing and holding Mike up because he was still new on his prosthetic leg so that he could salute Alan's flag draped coffin. And I remember watching my husband just go to pieces over this man that he loved. They had both survived being blown to bits in Afghanistan and then to come home and to lose that fight on the home front. I, my husband couldn't take it. What I didn't realize at the time as I watched Danica hold a baby on one hip and be handed a folded American flag was that I would watch that scenario unfold over and over again. The only time my husband's brothers were getting together was at funerals. We lost Derek Hill, another Bravo Company brother, in 2018 to suicide. I sat at the church and I looked around because these men, they are all paratroopers still in every sense of the word. They mobilize, they deploy from every corner across America when there is crisis among their ranks. So they were there to, to bury Derek and send him off like we would send off all of our paratroopers. And as we left and they started to basically say that they would see each other, it was implied they would see each other at the next one. And I realized that I had to use this incredible blessing of the Independence Fund to start with trying to save some of our own, our, our Bravo Company family. And we approached the VA, the incredible Dr. Keita Franklin, and I said, I have this wild idea. I want to reunite the entire combat team at home. I want to charge them that they're each other's keeper at home the same way they were on the battlefield. And the VA moved very quickly, which we all know government really doesn't. But I think everyone, especially under Dr. Franklin's leadership, they wanted out of the box innovative solutions to trying to finally combat this suicide epidemic that is just absolutely horrific to those who have sacrificed so much for us. 
And so Operation Resiliency was born. And like I said, it was born at a, a family reunion of sorts, a military family reunion, but ones that we should have never had. We should never have lost these guys on the home front. And our inaugural Operation Resiliency was held in April of 2019 with my husband's unit, Bravo Company, 2508. Of the 116 surviving men in that unit, 98 of them came to our reunion. It, it was just watching these grown men hug, cry, kiss each other because they were so relieved and so grateful to see each other will forever be etched on my heart as one of the best moments of my life. There was a, a, lot of, a lot of loss. It was very apparent about the guys that we didn't have with us anymore that couldn't be there. And in their honor, they really decided to make a pledge to each other, no more suicide among our ranks. And there's a very heavy mental health component to it. VA actually writes our curriculum and sends instructors and they also make sure that psych education is vital. What to do if you're struggling, what to do if your brother's struggling, and how to access these resources. But we do fun. We do things like whitewater rafting and getting the team back together, yoga. And they all fall right back into that military mindset and among their ranks. But we've been able to replicate Operation Resiliency with other units. So we host tactical combat units, units that saw heavy casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then have come home to a suicide crisis. So it's so incredibly rewarding. I know with Bravo Company, you know, they sent 24 men home as casualties. And even if you are not one of those casualties, it weighs on you to see your brother being put on that medevac, to not know if he's going to be okay, but to have to continue the mission. And so it provided not even just closure, but some closure, of course, about what went on over in Afghanistan or Iraq, but also the ability to move on as a team still. And I believe this is the most important mission they will ever do for the rest of their lives. I was very blessed to have incredible support from my husband's leadership, their command team, Major Armstrong and um, Command Sergeant Major McAllister. And they absolutely said, let's do it. And when you have a strong command team who wants to prevent suicide among their ranks, you will have a successful unit. So we've been able to go on and replicate this throughout the country. And it is absolutely so rewarding to watch. Before Sean, real quick, if I can just make a comment, because I just off script, it just, it just touched my heart. You know, several weeks ago, and Sean, remember this, we, we, we touched on things on active duty that we're having a challenge with transitioning these kind of policies and practices. And here, a girl, a lady, a national hero, marries her high school sweetheart, doing these amazing things with Michael, honoring Alan and Derek, linking up with someone with some collateral in VA, Dr. Franklin, and creating change and taking it to the local level in a military unit, expanding it nationally. This is where change happened. Now, maybe we see it myopically and don't see it nationally all the way down to the local level where we want to see. But I tell you what, we have a solution here, Operation Resiliency that needs to be implemented on active duty, 18 months cycles out before they get out of the army, targeting these military units like you do with the 82nd Air Force Bravo Company, right? This is what happens. You have a solution set. All you gotta do is implement it continuously, cyclically change. Go ahead, Sean. Thank you, Mike. Sarah, I'll make this brief, but I, because um, I know our words are, are words. Um, but uh, the day after Memorial Day, I just want to say thank you 
And I know you probably hear that a lot, but what I appreciate the most is um, the actions. You know, we get a lot of thank yous and, um, you know, that's important, but the actions, I, I, I don't even have words to, to thank you for the actions that you have been putting in for our veterans. And um, I'll just speak briefly. I'm a former police officer. I'm a, come from a family. Uh, father was a Marine and then um, he went on to become a long-term federal agent, family of firemen, family of military veterans. And uh, I just want to express my gratitude because, um, and also if you could, before I ask you this next question, uh, when you, if you can remember to uh, thank your husband, Michael, uh, on behalf of the Flynn family. Um, and um, I'm going to go ahead and just ask you this next question, Sarah. Sarah, your husband, Michael, was severely wounded in Afghanistan while serving as an infantryman with the 82nd Airborne back in 2010. This wasn't easy on your family. In fact, your daughter, Grace, endured a mean comment by one of her friends about the way her daddy looked. This inspired you to write a book called Hero at Home. A little choked up. No, thank you. Sarah, can you share with us that experience of writing the book and the mental and emotional courage that it took? Absolutely. So my children were born post-injury. We were very blessed in that regard. My husband has unfortunately um, had a lot of setbacks and declines over the last two years. So I always say God knew we needed to grow our family and grow it quickly because we had three little girls in three years and four days. We were very, very blessed. They never knew anything was wrong or different with their daddy until other people started to tell them. And that was devastating for me because my girls adore my husband and they think he hung the moon. And so in preschool, uh, a little girl said to Grace, well, Grace, or said about Grace, Gracie's daddy is weird and gross. He doesn't have a leg. And um, Mike has always been shy, always. I had to, you know, draw any conversation out of him, even as teenagers. And I knew he was mortified. I knew it. Um, he's, he's pretty badly burned. His arm was partially reconfigured and reattached. And of course, he has a prosthetic leg. I knew that he wanted to sink into the ground with that comment from a child because he also knew how badly it would affect our daughter. And the next night when I was putting her to bed, she said to me, mama, daddy's not gross. He's a hero and he's so handsome. And I realized as a child for her to be processing it almost two days later, she was still very bothered by it. And I sat down and I, I just wrote out these sentences about how I would explain it to little kids about, you know, Mr. Mike having a robot leg and that he uses a wheelchair sometimes, and he misses his friends who didn't get to come home, and he makes mistakes, like he puts the keys in the fridge and the milk in the closet, because that's very normal as part of our day. Mike has nursing care at home. Um, he, he would qualify to live in a nursing home, but of course, that's not something we look at as an option. He has nursing care at home. My children are very involved with it. Um, as, as he has declined, I say things to my children like, you know, daddy's brain is just sleepier now than it was because they'll say things to me like, well, you know, daddy doesn't play Legos anymore. Or daddy doesn't want to do this. And I say, well, his brain just got sleepier. He's had a lot of surgeries. He still works very hard to get better. Um, but it is hard because they'll say things like, well, so-and-so's daddy plays soccer. 
um, how come our daddy doesn't play soccer? And my mom actually does the best job because it can be very painful for me. So my mom does the very best job of saying, well, when daddy was in high school with mommy, he used to play soccer. He could run so fast when he had two legs. Um, and it's really important to show that to my children so they can be so proud of their daddy. And in turn, we can educate families that there are so many, there are thousands of young men like Mike across this country who do have new arms and legs and they have robot parts. And it's something that I want children to celebrate rather than be scared of. So it's been an incredible, incredible process to watch this book be shared at military installations throughout the country in hundreds of classrooms and to really open that dialogue about what it means to love a wounded veteran in your community, because we know they are in every community across America. Sarah, that's beautiful. Um, can you tell our listeners here how they can get a copy of the book or where they can get it from? Absolutely. So the book is called Hero at Home, and the forward was written by Senator Elizabeth Dole, who, of course, I think is the original military caregiver, providing just the most loving hands-on care to Senator Bob Dole. And he just celebrated his 75th Alive Day after being wounded during World War II. They are such dear friends to us and incredible inspiration. The book is available at all major retailers, and you can certainly request it. And the book is Hero at Home, and it's available at all major retailers or, of course, online at Amazon. Great. Yeah, if there's not a dry eye out there, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm wiping away my tears before I ask the next question, Okay. <laughs> You just demonstrated not only the compassion there, but, you know, caring for a loved one is a demanding task. It really is. Military caregivers consistently experience worse health, I've understood. Uh, a lot of great strain on the family relationships. Sometimes we don't really realize that. And more workplace problems than non-caregivers. And it's been worse since post-911 caregivers. Military caregivers also face an elevated risk for depression. Caregivers who spend more time caregiving and those who help caregivers, recipients cope with behavioral problems are most likely to exhibit symptoms of depression. I guess that what I'm trying to say is caregivers get sick too. You know, what's more, 33% of post-911 military caregivers lack health care coverage. Now they got financial concerns as well. So caregiving can also pose a financial burden to caregivers, employers, and society. With that said, if you had the golden pen, there you go, Sarah. You've already been doing miracles out there. But if you had the golden pen to make a difference out there, a policy change, and we always look at it as a threefold uh, treatments out there, medical, mental, or spiritual, care for our veterans, what would you do and why? You know, this is something that I could give you so many different answers to because there are ways that I really do believe, and I think many in my field believe, that a caregiver who is well-supported and well-connected is going to ensure that the veteran is taken care of. It's all about putting on your own oxygen mask first. There are so many ways I could answer that question because, of course, from a mental health perspective and then physical health and reforms that are needed to these systems, many of which still have such archaic policies and procedures, um, I would say that and many in my field agree, a well-supported, connected caregiver with resources is going to ensure the health and safety of that veteran they're caring for. But really from a policy perspective, um, the VA of today is a really good institution. It's one that we've seen good reform happen. We see people who are there because they want to care for those that they are serving. Um, but the VA, when we transitioned, 
was horrific. In 2013, I waited seven weeks for critical care for Mike. He still had open wounds, and I had to go on YouTube and learn how to pack his wounds myself. I had to duct tape his prosthetic leg because some VA employee left a piece of paper sitting on their desk for 57 days without signing it so that they could authorize either a repair or a replacement. Transition is really hard. We know what transition does to the mental health and the physical health of our veterans, and then in turn, of course, their families. So if I had a magic wand, it would to be that these federal agencies work in concert. There are so many specific pieces of legislation we've championed that we've been a part of that I'm really proud of. But what it comes down to is we need to fix the transition piece. We need to ensure that programs like Operation Resiliency are the norm. We need to make sure that DOD and VA talk to each other when a service member is transitioning. They identify high risk, that the families are involved in that, that they have the resources. That transition is not this scary, daunting time where so many fall through the cracks, but rather a pretty seamless transition where a grateful nation and its department, its federal departments, do stand ready to take care of that veteran and family. Yes. Sarah, this is Sean. Again, thank you. I I would like the listeners to hear out there, um, especially the veterans right now and uh, the first responders, any and all first responders, uh, if you're struggling. um, Colonel Mike Brown and I, we met back in 2017 as a result of this intention that we're hearing from Sarah today. It's an intention that was backed by action. So I I had the privilege of meeting Colonel Mike Brown at Warrior's Heart out in Bandera, Texas, and I'm grateful that happened because today I I get to to live a spiritual path of action and I'm early in my recovery and I just want those out there that are listening because it's not about me. It's about you guys and there is a way out and feel free to reach out reach out to colonel mike reach out to myself and we can help potentially put dots together to get you on the right path Um, just very grateful here today i can't express I'll, i'll turn it over to you mike because you know i've lost just about everything except for this moment now i get to rebuild my life in the spiritual path of of recovery and uh i'm on my way back and it's moment to moment, and things are getting better. But really, my intention is not for myself. My intention is for those folks out there that are listening, not just the suffering souls, but those out there with affluence and influence, as I always say, to hopefully put the kind of action that we're hearing from Sarah, put that kind of action and effort, rather than just a pat on the back, so that we can actually start addressing this epidemic and start making a difference and i'm very grateful and, and colonel mike i'm, I'm kind of uh, taken aback it was a very great show sarah thank you and i'll let you i'll let you uh choose my the words that i can't even find right now colonel mike i'll let you choose them for me thank you thank you thank you sean thank you very much america there are an estimated 5.5 million military caregivers in the united states Of these, 1.1 million are caring for post-911 veterans. 17% of the civilian caregivers are reportedly spending more than 40 hours per week providing care, some up to 80 hours per week. Sarah, caregiver like you, you are a hidden hero. You're keeping, as part of the Independence Fund, our veterans out of institutions and helping them live longer and higher quality lives. 
I cannot thank you enough on behalf of America for what you're doing for our veterans and their families all over America. You're a national treasure, Sarah. What you've done is just going to better our country. Sarah, final words. Well, I can't thank you enough for having me and for shining a light on these issues that are so important, not only to those suffering, but as grateful Americans, those who want to take care of them. So I, I really just extend my most sincere, grateful heart to both of you, or all of you, and, and just thank you so much. What I would say is when Mike came home and we were able to return back to Rhode Island when he was medically retired, I quickly realized I had to relieve him of duty. I had to. And I said to him, I've got it from here. And that was very hard because life wasn't going to look like I wished or hoped it would. And there are a lot of days that are absolutely heartbreaking. But I believe every American, even those like me, I've never served a day in my life. I've never worn our nation's uniform. But I will forever believe that the other way we can serve if we can't wear the uniform ourselves is to serve by serving those who have and making sure they have grace and dignity and health and every resource they could imagine for all the days of their lives. So I really just I beg every American to get involved and to support these families here at home. Thank you, Sarah. There are more than 20 million veterans living in the United States today, many of whom have service-connected conditions or disabilities that require ongoing support and care. Supporting these wounded, ill, and injured warriors are the nation's hidden heroes, caregivers, who provide unpaid, informal support with activities that enable current and former U.S. service members to live fuller lives. These caregivers are an essential but often overlooked component of the nation's care for returning warriors. If we sum up the national care for vets, we have a lot of work to do to reduce the suicide rates in this country. Today we had Sarah, the CEO of the Independence Fund. Today is gonna to be different. Today will be another day. We look to local leaders out there to listen to this show, to take note. Sarah had game-changing ideas. If we're gonna live this up to big government, We've waited 12 years. Maybe I shouldn't say they failed, but we should also look at the statistics. Suicides are on the rise, but we have people like Sarah out there that are making a big difference. We got to stop the epidemic, folks. We can't live like this any longer. The norm can't be 22 a day. We can't live with 70,000, which we're going to top here in 2020. This is a national issue with local implications. I want to shout out there today for two people that I heard on this show, for the families of Alan and Derek. God bless you. God bless the United States of America. God bless our veterans and God bless our caregivers. I would like to give a shout out to the Wounded Warrior Project, which is a charity and veteran service organization that offers a variety of programs, services, and events for wounded veterans in the military and their families. For over 17 years, their commitment to the welfare has been priority number one. It is the real deal, folks. It's making a difference. I know it has for me in reducing suicides amongst vets. To contact them, reach out to woundedwarriorproject.org. Again, woundedwarriorproject.org. With the new day comes new strength and new thoughts. Eleanor Roosevelt. Thank you for listening to Crisis in America PTSD. All veterans, first responders, or potential guests 
We would love to hear from you. Please email your comments to Colonel Mike Brown. That's brown.mike734 at gmail.com. Once again, brown.mike734 at gmail.com.